0: This is There Will Be Blood. Let's start
1: the show. If I say I'm an oil man, you will agree. This is my son and my partner, H.W. Plainview. You boys are a regular family business. You boys are a little late. We'll offer a million for full title. What else would I do with myself? You spend time with your boy. Don't tell me how to raise my family. One night, I'm going to come to you wherever you're sleeping, and I'm going to cut your throat. Win it all.
0: Starts Friday in select theaters. Welcome back to a brand new episode of Two Please. I'm your host Abin.
1: and I'm your co-host Rohit. Uh, firstly, sorry for the big uh, gap between the last episode and this one. Uh, that was primarily my bad. I've, I've moved houses um, since the last episode, and therefore I was just caught up in the whole the whole hubbub of you know what goes with it. So abin has been nice and patient enough to wait for me to settle into the new place before we could record as you can see I've set up my little den of this is my study where I've got movie posters and in my books and uh, stuff so this is going to be where I'm going to record for the foreseeable future I'm really excited for it but uh, that's not the only change the other change is that in the time that uh, I was moving it wasn't that uh, it wasn't like Abhin and I weren't discussing the podcast at all A couple of things happened in our discussions that we want to address right at the top. Firstly, we want to bring some structure into our episodes, uh, as some of you would have realized. Firstly, we've gone from broad themes to discussing standalone movies in episodes. So that was part of, uh, you know, that was in the direction of uh, bringing some structure. But more specifically, what we're going to do. Uh, in episodes going forward is we're sort of breaking it down into chapters where each chapter covers a specific facet that we want to discuss about the movie or things related to the movie since this is the first episode where we're sort of bringing this structure into play we will uh, briefly give an idea of what each chapter is when we get to it uh, in the episode so that's one thing the other is that in the last couple of weeks uh, in fact for longer than that we've been getting uh, uh, some feedback on the fact that uh while we on this podcast primarily discuss movies uh, or pop culture that Abhin and I both like, given that we have uh, some listenership, some viewership, it, it also, you know, it's also a platform for us to uh, bring a little more awareness or talk about uh, women in cinema, like women directors or women oriented movies, because uh, that's unfortunately not something that's still given the light of day that it deserves, right? So, yeah. If, if there is something we can do, uh, we should, and we've heard that feedback, and we want to do that more of that going forward, and we're going to figure it out, and uh, you'll hear more of us on that uh, in the coming weeks. So, just wanted to put that out there at the top of the episode, but with that out of the way, I mean, which movie are we going to discuss
0: today? Yeah, before I jump into this movie, guys, I'd, I'd really appreciate if you either, if you listen to this, if you're watching us on YouTube, could you please, like give us a like and subscribe to the channel. It really helps. And if you're listening to this on any of the podcast platforms, please do uh, follow the podcast and give us a rating, whatever you prefer, because uh, it really helps us getting uh, getting more visibility out for the podcast and getting this out to more people. So please, that's just one more disclaimer that I... Not disclaimer, one more thing I wanted to bring to your attention. So before. coming back to the film today, we're discussing 2007's There Will Be Blood starring Daniel Day-Lewis. Um, paul dano kevin g o'connor and directed by paul thomas anderson this is a movie that i had not seen for the longest time i think it's probably one of two films that i haven't seen or three films i haven't seen in his entire filmography so it was my first time watching this film just over the over the weekend before we recorded this episode oh uh, yeah
1: i've watched this a few years ago. And uh, I mean, I was blown away by it then. So like I mentioned, the first chapter is the first impressions uh, that we have of this movie. Again, the, the chapter name is self-explanatory. We're going to not spend too much time here. Just a quick summary of your thoughts about the movie. A minute each and then we move on to the next bit.
0: I did not expect what <laughs> this movie ended up showing me, right? So this was a film that I expected to be a spectacle piece even though I, I know it's a Paul Thomas Anderson film, I expected this movie to be uh, a lot more bigger in scale. And I was very surprised when it turned out to be the exact opposite. As a matter of fact, this is a proper character study of a man that basically, um, in his bid to become the most one of the most successful people in 20th century America, kind of loses all of his uh, humanity in the process. And while watching this film, I spent a good three hours the movies are just under under three hours long i spent a good majority of that part just sitting on this very chair that i'm currently recording this podcast in and just staring at the screen in disbelief as to what i was watching it completely transfixed me i was hooked from the very start like and and that's odd given that this movie doesn't have a lot of like i mentioned spectacle changes it's dialogue heavy it's it's purely based on, on narrative and on conversations between different characters in the film.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a movie that is imminently rewatchable. Uh, and we'll get to the specific moments that we feel stay with you even after you watch the movie. But my first impressions, I'd say, like you mentioned, again, I don't know. I mean, again, Parasite exists and Moonlight exists and all of that. But this is among the greatest movies in the 21st century, I feel, firstly. Um, definitely Daniel Day-Lewis uh, Daniel Day-Lewis's best performance although he's i mean that's a you know that's a big uh very high bar for him obviously being again I would consider probably the single best actor again I'll get to why I feel that way uh down the line Later and on. Uh, great, and definitely again in my opinion single greatest cinematic performance uh in any movie the movie's long like you said it's uh, just shy of 3 hours but it's so the story moves on so you know, it's like uh, situation to situation, set piece to set piece. You don't really feel the time. It moves very quickly. It doesn't waste. There is There are no wasted moments in the movie. Very absorbing, very uh, nuanced character study. Uh, lot of great dialogue, lot of lovely music, which again, we'll get to. Johnny Greenwood just knocks it out of the park. Uh, but again, it's at the end of the day, it's the performances that bring this very complicated story home it's a performance that lands this story and a lot of themes to chew on the movie is very layered there's a lot to marry you know ruminate on so uh, first impressions those, those are the things that i had in mind and uh, all of these things are what we're going to get into in more detail across this episode, and I'm really like itching to get into it. So
0: that's the yeah, that's the first impressions. That's our first impressions anyway. So let's quickly summarize this film before we get into further discussions of, uh, on it. So There Will Be Blood is a 2007 American drama film directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, based on Upton Sinclair's 1927 novel Oil. Uh, the film stars Daniel Day Lewis as Daniel Plainview, a ruthless and ambitious oil man during the late 19th and the early 20th 20th century period. The film follows Daniel Plainview's journey as he begins his career as a silver miner who eventually transitions into the oil business. His primary goal is to amass wealth and power, and he's willing to manipulate, deceive, and exploit others to achieve his ambitions. As he expands his drilling operations, Plainview encounters conflicts with local communities, landowners, and a charismatic preacher named Eli Sunday, played by Paul Dano, who runs a church and demands financial compensation for his church's support of playing projects. The power struggle between the two really encaptures the themes of greed, family, capitalism and religion which culminate in a dramatic finale.
1: Now you have context of the movie uh, for those of you who haven't watched it and yet inexplicably are listening to this episode <laughs> uh, or it's more of a refresher for those of you who watched it a while ago and forgotten. But uh, do you have any more stories? Do we know anything more about the making of the movie? What went behind the scenes? A bit more context would probably help.
0: Yeah. So, with regards to the BTS of this film, I think um, Nandy Lewis has approached a year prior to the role and he was given time to prep for it. But with Paul Dano, it was a very different scenario. Now, Paul Dano is one of the most, in my opinion, of the most underrated actors working today. And in two thousand six, yep. uh, two thousand six, two thousand seven, when this film is shot, he was. I think he had Little Miss Sunshine to his credit, and he had. And he played a dude named Klits on The Girl Next Door, which exactly. Is, is I just really know these stu- two
1: roles of his. <laughs> Pre, there will be blood. Yeah.
0: yeah, which is really, which is a really stupid film, but it's also one of those movies that uh, I kind of like. I, in fact, I loved growing up. Recent rewatches, watches it uh, has kind of dulled the experience a little bit but it, it's one of those really sweet films um so when he was cast i think as paul sunday which is a character in the film he had a very minor role because once again paul Dano at the time was in such a odd commodity and it turns out that one of the actors the main actor who was chosen to play eli sunday paul's brother backed out because i think he had an he was too scared by Daniel Day lewis presence. What was that? <laughs> yeah,
1: he was too intimidated. He was intimidated by, if I recall the quote correctly, Daniel Day Lewis's intensity. Which, for those of you who watch the film, I would say is a legitimate. I, I'll take that. Like I won't. I won't disparage him. I feel bad that he missed out on a. You know, his career is a big what if if he had uh, persevered through his fear. But I get you, dude. Like. What's his name? Kim what? Some O'Neill?
0: Uh, uh, Kel O'Neill, I think. Kell O'Neill. Kell O'Neill. Kel, O'Neil Kel, O'Neil, plays. Like, Kel yeah, Buddy, I the... get you. <laughs> I mean, it it it's a great, like you mentioned. What a great what if? If he had done this, and if it, his star could have taken off in a very different direction, and uh, like there is this is again another. A correlation with the theme of fate which i will get to again when we're talking about the, the theme as part of this episode but it's it could things could have been so different for paul Dano had it not been uh keller fear of danny day lewis that kind yeah, of ultimately forced uh, him off
1: with you know having if i recall correctly what i read was paul was told paul Dano here was told four days before shooting eli scenes that hey that good that dude's bounced so do you want to do, like, the other role as well? And what was supposed to be just a one, sin, one single scene role of Paul Sunday essentially ended up being the second most important character in the movie for Paul Dano. And I would say for somebody who was, what, two, three films old into his career at that point to be working against Daniel fucking Day-Lewis, he goes toe-to-toe with DDL. He There are scenes where I would say he outshines DDL as well, which... I mean, if there is a testament for Paul Dino's acting abilities, this is as good as any. Uh, he's outstanding in this movie.
0: Yeah, I, I, I don't think we we probably name check him as much as we might name check his character or characters in this case, because um, yeah. it's it definitely like the first time you see him in two separate places. I was very confused as to what was happening, and turns yeah. out, and that that and trying to explore that aspect of those characters. Is a whole other conspiracy bubble that exists on the on the web, so <laughs> it's you would be amazed at the number of theories and the number of conspiracy uh, like the theories once again uh, that exist are based on the two Sunday characters. But I have a, a far more simpler and a far more um, normal take compared to those guys. Um, but moving on, I, anything else to add? Yes, this film was also shot in the same region where No Country for Old Men was shot. Same the same you know, town. Going on. They both were the shot same. in the same town. And apparently, uh, the, the famous
1: scene of where the, the derrick explodes, the oil derrick explodes, catches on fire. Uh, no Country for Old Men had to stop shooting for a day because the smoke from the fire was coming in the background of the shots. I'm like, guys, it was ruining it's a <laughs> big-ass country. Why did you both have to shoot in the same town?
0: And it, it really... Uh, you look back at it look back at 2007 because these two films ultimately became front runners for best picture that year and the top five films nominated for that year itself i think you could argue that one is probably weaker than the other four but the other four that were nominated are all outstanding so you have There would be blood you have um no country for old men you have atonement and i'm missing Mm -hmm. one Michael um, Clayton? Was it best movie or just Michael Clayton June? is the one, yeah, it was yeah, was also the was the other one. And Juno, which was uh, again uh, Jason Reitman's breakout. It was such yeah, a Yeah, I mean Juno is a fun, nice little...
1: movie, but uh, you know.
0: Yeah, I know, but Juno like let's say
1: Juno, even yeah. Juno knows Juno. <laughs> Two thousand seven as a year was super stacked and uh, I kind of feel bad for There Will Be Blood because you know, no country for old men had to release the same year i would say in hindsight looking back again hot take controversial statement there will be blood has aged better than no country for old men there will be blood covers larger themes says bigger things than than no country for old men i know no country for old men has its own very it has its own depth it talks about growing old in a in a competitive world and all it's it's equally profound i just like there will be blood more i'm sorry
0: <laughs> I did watch No Country for Overman very recently. That movie, in, I'm going to disagree with you, that movie is aged like fine wine. It, as a matter of fact, it gets better with each viewing. The first time I yeah, saw yeah. it, I obviously was... Nothing against it. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a phenomenal film. And I just feel bad for PTA that every time he's pulled in like an Oscar contender, he's always been outshone by uh, one other film that just happened to be a little more appealing uh to, to a wider audience i'd say i i still feel
1: what i feel I, I, but i, I completely mm. get your point as well but yeah that's that's just you know mm. we were just uh we just wanted to give a bit more context about the movie i think now we can mm-hmm. sort of really dig our or sink our teeth into it uh yeah so what we're going to do is uh we're going to get into an in-depth discussion of certain themes that are prevalent across the movie but before we do that going to spend a couple of minutes on just the memorable as like scenes or you know score or s- memorable things about the movie that you really stay with you after you after the, the credits start rolling so what were the things yeah. in the movie that really stood out to you a bit?
0: I think uh, I'm going to start with the first 20 minutes of this film or the first 15 mm-hmm. minutes of this movie mm-hmm. I kind of it. I know we have like a, a list of of moments we'd like to talk about but i'd be remiss in my duties if i didn't talk about this movie's opening for the first 15 to 17 minutes or whatever it is that of of the film there is no dialogue being spoken in yeah. fact what you're being shown is you're being shown this person who is basically just using this pickaxe to uh dig for dig for silver and gold ores and uh, who finds himself in these extremely uncomfortable situations ends up breaking a leg, drags himself out of oh, a yeah. well. A lot is happening, and I think this is the part of the film that is meant to show you who this person is, rather than tell you who this person is through his actions, through his um, through his demeanor, through uh, through his eyes. And he doesn't talk a lot. Also, like I mean, obviously not, given that there's no um, there, there's no dialogue for the first 15 minutes, but. There's so much physical acting happening at play here and so much is being conveyed to the audience without saying anything. It's a remarkable achievement. I, after a point, started counting the number of minutes that had passed without any lines that were being said. And I was amazed at just how good of a job it's doing because cause in a generation like this, where our attention spans... Uh, wait yeah, for 30 seconds say, and
1: this sort yeah. of movie opening does not get made today it's true that you like 80 good... of your audience will switch off people are used to 30 seconds you're going to say 15 minutes of no dialogue fuck off
0: yeah the, you need in, in the instant gratification audience is very much the ruling class today right so yeah. it's uh it, i don't think this movie gets that amount of leeway like it did back in 07 nope. which for me i think is is a is a forgotten time in films because it it's really, a relic of a bygone profits. era. We should appreciate exactly, it exactly. Yeah, exactly. So I think definitely the first part of this, the first fifteen minutes of this movie, is is definitely there. And uh, I'll have one moment in this where where something happens, but I'll save that for the themes part of the of the episode because I feel sure. it's more relevant to that discussion. What is your uh, what are the moments that are, that you find very memorable in the, in this film
1: I mean I want to get the most obvious one out of the way first which is the the last scene of the movie most famous for the whole I drink your milkshake meme uh, I would say I drink your milkshake is probably the most famous aspect of that scene but for me it is the weakest part of the scene and I'm saying this as someone who this scene is the one single movie scene I have rewatched the most in my life Purely because mm. anytime I'm in I'm in the mood for hey let's just watch a fucking phenomenal performance I just put this scene on because this is where this is the apex of both characters both the actors' performance in the film I feel Daniel yeah. Day-Lewis at his yeah. peak Paul Dano at his peak in this mm. scene so it's just like uh so more than the milkshake part you know I the, just the lines keep coming to my head where uh, Paul Dano says. Uh, was that? Uh, he tests, uh, you know, these um, uh, mysteries that he presents. Uh, he challenges us. He says, yes, he does. And Daniel is like, Yes, he doesn't. <laughs> like, oh, fuck. <laughs> that and uh, you lose to drainage, Eli, you boy. The, the enunciation of boy. I'm just like, chef's kiss, dude. Both of them just knock it out of the park in this scene. It is
0: out. It's, it's like super captivating viewing because I, I i've seen the scene in isolation not the entirety of the scene uh okay. because once again quizzing circuits will do that to yeah. you <laughs> and so i like so it's one of those things where i've i know of the milkshake scene it has such great cultural uh, la- like value at this point there have been parodies of it people in bowling alleys sitting and talking about milkshakes and i had zero context as to what was what they were talking <laughs> about and i was waiting for this scene to happen in the film i'm like where is it and then two hours and 35 minutes, 30 minutes into the film and here it is. I'm like, oh, are we ending the movie on this? I thought this was like I a, am like the third
1: order. revelation. <laughs>
0: I am the third revelation.
1: Oh, man.
0: <laughs> so it's it's very interesting. And uh, again, like you mentioned, in terms of Apex, I don't agree that this is Paul a- Paul Dano's Apex. It might, it will be another scene that we talk about. Um, the Churchill. Again, yeah which is which i think for might be paul Dano's apex there um but this yeah this is probably dino Lewis lewis's yep um crowning glory right you're he's enunciating that voice is moving through the ranges he's <laughs> like this this cold fury as well as it's like you know the 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 need to to not just win, but to absolutely crush your competition yeah. and let them know why <laughs> you're crushing your competition is so primal. Uh, yeah, it's so it? Yeah, it's to it's to show you that I have won and you have lost, and there is absolutely nothing that you can do about it yeah. because of what I have done to to achieve it. And <laughs> it it's so powerful, and the way it ends. It ends with this because I'm because I'm waiting for the there's a third character that introduces the scene that disappears. I'm like, where is this person? Clearly, he must have heard something. And then he comes back, and then the movie ends with the line, I'm finished, I'm finished. and 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 cut. It's perfect. Uh, cut it's first thing perfect, the ending of the movie. Now, here's some trivia about the the milkshake sequence. So he talks about drain it it, as he does right so he talks about how the concept of the about how the the land that eli is trying to sell him is completely useless because having set up the the pipeline he's managed to drain all the uh all the oil from underneath uh uh underneath the land so he explains the concept to him using a milkshake saying i have two milkshakes and if i have a longer straw i drink your i drink your milkshake now this funnily enough was a reference to an actual scandal that happened in the in the early 20th century called the teapot dome scandal yeah warren harding's uh, tenure warren and i think his his cabinet minister uh, albert hall albert fall sorry uh, was accused of basically handing out leases to two companies one being i think albert he was hall, the fall hall, guy dude yeah he was the fall guy maybe that's where the term comes from who knows hey, maybe yeah actually yeah that that's yeah that's something for us look to go up. look up yeah so Albert Paul, um, <laughs> was accused of handing leases to um, two companies the mammoth oil corporation and the sinclair oil corporation without having a proper bidding process and in those congressional hearings somebody was asked he was asked to explain drainage and he said, Congressman or Sir, and I think am sure it's a paraphrase. He says, If the both if the two of us have milkshakes and I have the longest straw, I'll be able to drink your milkshake. Which is wow, which is why uh uh Daniel Plainview makes the analogy as a tribute to the actual hearing back in the early 20, early twenties. Yeah,
1: I had read about this. But and the teapot dome scandal for its time was a a fairly big scandal. Now it's like, yeah, you know, it's every other Sunday. <laughs>
0: Now it's uh it's it's just like it's normal. I mean, this is the the early rungs of capitalism before they're just uh, setting the uh, setting the board for what was to come. Yeah,
1: but sorry, uh, we spent too long on the memorable moment. So there was the milkshake scene. Uh, let's talk about the other scene that we both uh, alluded alluded to, which was the church scene. Which I I think yeah. in hindsight I agree is probably Paul Dano's apex and uh, Daniel Day Lewis's second. Whatever, it's the K2 of his performance in this movie, I'd say. But again, what a lovely scene. It it comes down to, for business reasons, Daniel Plainview has to sort of make good with the Church of the Third Revelation and Paul Dano's character, Eli Sunday, uh, sees this as an opportunity to extract some revenge uh, on Daniel Plainview for an earlier slight, which is where he puts him in the mud and all of that. Uh, Yeah. And Elastigirl takes full use of the opportunity, decides to really hurt Daniel Plainview's character where it hurts him most, uh, which is his abandonment of his child.
0: And uh, how does the scene go of it? So when the scene began, and it and it begins with him asking him to confess. I think there's an analogy to be made. It's probably the the Game of Thrones um, walk of shame that happens to Queen Cersei. I is a close comparison, maybe because of what what she's trying to get by also like humili- subjecting herself to humiliation. And similarly, the case with Daniel Towards a
1: means, dead. yeah, towards an end.
0: Sorry. Yeah, towards a means. Like, it's still pain, like the earlier parts of with him having to abandon his son. And we'll talk about why he abandons his son because there's another scene that, that plays a, a key part in it. And initially, it's him, obviously, like struggling to say the words and then as he's getting through it he's uh he fully commits to the to the scenario that's unfolding there cuz Eli sunday not only is extracting revenge but is playing to the crowd uh it's uh, in an earlier scene it's established that he is some sort of a healer and he as and he yeah, kind of feels like a proper old school
1: evangelist yeah he's like yeah. you know show a lot of sh- uh, the smoke and mirrors showing lot of you know performance play so he he incorporates all of that and just to add a point before you continue uh eli knows daniel's trying to get away with through this process being low profile he's like no 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 not so fast you know i'm going to make a spectacle of this and he puts all his powers to use doing that
0: and then as it's progressing and as ultimately when it when he's accepted by the church when he's baptized by the church there is a sense of triumph like when Daniel has this I won like I, I, I needed this one bit of thing and to have waded through this this horrible humiliating moment was fully worth it because he feels justified like his whole that whole ordeal was ultimately required for what he wanted to achieve and to go and from that on that scale is Yeah, oh, it is definitely an audience. He gets uh, beaten, he gets doused in holy water.
1: He gets slapped by Eli Sunday. And Eli knows that that child bit hurts him. So he keeps saying, I I have, I will not backslide. Okay, I have abandoned my child. Okay, he says it for the first time. He again brings that line back. Second time, Daniel is a little more irritated saying that line. Again, he's like, I've abandoned my child. There's a look that Daniel Plainview gives him. Like, you fucker, you know this is hard for me. And then he says, yeah. say it louder so that everyone can hear. That's when, you know, the dam breaks where Daniel can no longer deny that he's been an asshole about yeah. that situation. Like, I've abandoned my child. Abandoned my boy. Fuck. Insane.
0: Which, again, is a direct parallel to uh, what happens in the milkshake scene because he gets Eli to do the same things. Yes, yes. He gets yes. him to say, to, to denounce that he's a... I am a exactly. false prophet a and hoax. God is a superstition. That's the line. Superstition. It That's does the, the same line. thing.
1: Like, why don't you stand up? Why don't you uh, imagine your congregation is in this bowling alley? They can't hear you at the back. Say it loud and clear. I am a false prophet yeah. and God is a superstition.
0: Because Eli, I think we haven't spoken about, Eli is victim to the events of the Great Depression in uh, the late 20s, which is why yeah. he comes to comes to Daniel for, for help.
1: Yeah, and he's a fucking empty character who has no ability he's just you know uh fooling people into you know making money off of innocent religious folks and in a way i, I yeah. i'm I'm not saying daniel plainly is a good guy by no means is he a good guy but eli sunday's comeuppance in the in the end of the movie is really satisfying <laughs> to me at least so
0: now the the other scene that was in this film uh which is the Derek explosion where yeah. the oil rig blows sky high and uh, like the whole thing sets on fire and they're desperately trying to get a control of things. I think one of the, the co-workers comes up to Plainview and asks him, like, are you worried? He's like, There's a sea of oil underneath us. I'm he is overjoyed. But it's yeah. also juxtaposed with the tragedy of um, of his son, HW, who was who's been who was hanging around the barracks and he's affected and then the and I think they hit a gas pocket. Which ultimately causes yeah. things to explode and he is caught in the in, in the debris of it. He ends up losing his, his hearing. So it's again, I'll, I'll get to the themes part of it again, but there's uh, this entire scene and it plays for a a long time. It plays for a good six to seven minutes, if it, not longer. It feels
1: like a single take. I know it's not, but it's you're so it's in not, the scene. Yeah. It feels like
0: a one-off. And I think it's further enunciated by Johnny Greenwood's score. Oh, the, the here I, I, yeah. yeah, here I yeah. have
1: like the greatest like music uh, whatever film soundtrack funda I've ever heard. I remember using this in a quiz years ago. So if you watch the scene and listen to the music in the background, at the start of the scene, it feels like disparate percussion instruments playing off tune with each other. Right. It's like and it, it's completely the, the rhythm is not matching as the scene progresses. It's it's like their, their rhythms sort of converge and towards the end of the scene it's just this one constant. Din, 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 din. So the reason that happens is it signifies the fact that at the start of the scene, Daniel's focus is not it's it's not on the Derek, it's it's like his mind is on multiple things. He's talking to his kid, he's he's whatever, he's not focused yeah. on that single thing. And uh, as the explosion happens again. Tempo amps up. He's trying to focus on a lot of things. But when he sees that fire and he sees the oil spurting through the derrick, it's like single-minded focus. Everything else ceases to matter to him. HW ceases to matter to him. The people around him cease to matter to him. His sole focus is on the huge discovery that he has made and all the money he is going to make. And that's why the soundtrack converges into the single point of... And Johnny Greenwood purposely... Uh, like uh, compose the track like, When I read that, I was just like, like mind explosions. Uh-huh.
0: So minimal. It's nothing. Like it, it's not orchestral. It's like these single violins, these screechy violins. Uh, it's these, these this heart unnerving
1: screechy. You know, psycho-esque violins, like the kind that uh, exactly Hitchcock used in psycho.
0: Just yeah. So this, that, that. Yeah. So the Derek scene is is up there. Um, then the bastard in a blanket, which is the the the, the scene where. His son, by just HV. a bastard in a
1: basket. Oh. You're a bastard yes. in a basket.
0: The HW and and Daniel confrontation where. Dan yeah, I want to do a lot of Daniel you in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll we'll put you in like, like a suit and we'll get you the handlebar mustache and a hat <laughs> and we'll, we'll, we'll give you like the entire Daniel you uh, What is it called? Overlook? No the look you'll like with we'll, the look yeah so the bastard in the, in the basket sequence is uh for me a good indicator of just how much of his soul uh playing you is lost because he's sitting yeah. down across his son and his son is telling him i can't do this anymore i can't be around anymore i want to make something of myself and the only thing he hears when he's having that conversation is that oh you're just another competitor to me oh i i must crush you or, or like you have been nothing and he immediately takes it upon himself to belittle the child. This is a child that he supposedly cared for, that he's exploited for his means ruthlessly. Uh and and he, at this moment in time, none of it matters. The past, none of it matters. He just uses that moment to lash out at him repeatedly. And as HW gets up to walk away, I think HW ends up marrying one of the Sunday daughters. So yeah. he he and he and his wife they plan to like move out and um start their own thing and as as he's walking away uh he keeps calling out after him and he keeps like abusing him saying you're just a bastard in a basket and he's clearly drunk he's clearly out of uh out of control but it's it's very sad to see that this is what it's, it's super sad. all those years of effort yeah all those years of effort all those years of struggle have ultimately led to this empty shell of a man
1: like what was it all for right this empty house that huge house that you live alone in with your butler and nobody likes you and it just puts a cherry on the shit cake that is his personal life outside of business success so yeah in that sense it's a very powerful very important scene just i i just love the phrase bastard in a basket where who writes this dude where it's come from And oh. lastly, I just wanted to spend a quick minute. I know this this last scene is not uh, as memorable, memorable as the others, but I just like uh, the scene for the reaction of the guy. So this is where the standard oil guy comes to Daniel Plainview first time asking, why don't we uh, buy the land off of you? Like, you know, you've done the good work. You've made the discovery. So we'll buy it off of you for a million dollars. Be rich, enjoy life. You don't have to do the hard work of drilling and laying pipeline and all that. Daniel Plain is like no, no, guys. I I've got this figured it out. Like I I don't want you to come by me out. And repeatedly, twice, thrice in the scene, the Standard Oil guy keeps saying, "Why don't you spend time with your son? Why don't you your spend son, time with yeah. your son?" And it's I think it touches a, a an area of guilt for Daniel because he realizes his son is now deaf and he's not been nice to him. So again, he lashes out saying, uh, "Don't tell me how to run my family." And he says this line. When you're sleeping at night, I'm going to come come into your house and slit your throat. And the standalone guy is like, what? why are you talking about slitting my throat? <laughs> that reaction is, this movie is actually funny in places, you know, despite the very yeah, it dark it is yeah. and stuff. Mm-hmm. There is satire because Upton Sinclair was a satirist at, at heart. It was very layered satire. And it comes through in the movie at points. That guy's reaction <laughs> to why are you talking about slitting my throat? I'm just saying, I'll buy a hand off
0: of <laughs> So, <laughs> I, I forgot I to mention so this uh, in terms of like the the, the the satire angle. So, Daniel Day-Lewis said yes to this movie because he really enjoyed Punch Drunk Love. So, for this movie to exist, yeah. <laughs> one must really have to thank Adam Sandler. <laughs> yeah. So, God. Adam Sandler, in my opinion, you have, you have not just delivered like this... Insane number of comedies that people across the world have enjoyed, but you are but also you gave us, responsible. Uh, there will be blood. There will be blood. So thank you, Adam Sandler. And uncut gems. But always. And but okay, uh, that's uh I, I really found that so my interpretation of the meeting with the oil guys what is once because they, they're trying to prick at his ego, and they do so yeah. by saying, We'll take over and you should go spend time with your son. And it becomes a for me, I interpret it as a okay. Wait, no, fuck you. Watch me. Watch me do this now. Like, yeah, watch yeah. me do this and take care of my deaf son. So it it and then the the obviously the, the satirical bit about him slitting the standard all guy's throat comes into play, <laughs> play where he's fully out of the now.
1: Now what I want to do is I want to use this in like situations in life say if I'm at the gym somebody's using the bench I want I'm like hey are you using that yeah you know what I'm going to come to your house and I'm going to slit your throat (laughs) throw these lines
0: in random situations see what happens I have to to come bail you out of the, the nearest police station
1: it's such an overkill. It's hilarious overkill.
0: But yeah, I think that's that's our list of memorable moments. Let's quickly get into the themes for the this themes. film. Because I feel yeah. there are a few things that you want to discuss. Yep, yep. You want
1: to start off or uh, should I?
0: I'll start off with one. I'll start okay. off with the first being fate. So a, a huge chunk of this film is dependent on fate. And I think there's, there's no big indicator of the film as there is in the, at the start of it. Where after having discovered the oil, uh, Plainview and a co-worker are in there like basically pulling buckets of oil out of the, out of the hole. And the rig that they're using bakes and swings down and kills the co-worker. He's, and the co-worker's son is ultimately H- HW, right? Hmm. So who he adopts. And fate plays such a huge part in this man's life where it could have been him and we would have never had this story. If it was the co-worker who had survived, who knows what could have happened? Would he have sold that to Standard Oil? Would he have not gone to Paul Sunday's... Uh, um, mm. he would he have not taken up Paul Sunday's request because he, he sounded like every con man ever to exist? So much of this film relies on the concept of fate, like especially even when um, he discovers the derrick, he discovers uh, he discovers the amount of oil underneath he has gained a vast amount of riches, but in the process, in that exchange, he has he lost something exceptionally dear, in which is his son loses his hearing forever. And it's a it's a give and take. There's so many factors that happen in this that go on in this man's life that it that ultimately influence him to become the person that he is. I think he would always become the person he is given his ruthless drive and determination. But he mm-hmm. does get a fair helping of fate along the way. You know, in that sense, I
1: I see parallels between Daniel Plainview's character and uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's character in Nightcrawler. You know, they had those qualities of drive, ruthlessness, and just sheer, you know, I will remove anyone out of my path to get what I need. It was more yeah. a question of them finding their field of success. So Daniel Plainview would have been this kind of person, uh, regardless, like you said, fate brought him into the oil business. Um, what you call fate, I w- wanted to kind of uh, segue it into one of the themes I wanted to discuss here, which is the cost of success, right? Uh, I know offhand in one of our conversations, you had meant, you had used the term Faustian and bargain. I think that's the best yes. way you could, you could uh, put this. Which is that, yes, like we mentioned uh, in the bastard in a basket scene, he is now rich. At the end of the movie, he's rich. He has a huge house. He talks about, in one of the scenes with Henry, he talks about this huge house he used to aspire uh, to growing up. He probably has a much bigger and better house than that aspirational house that he grew up with. But uh, he has nobody that loves him. He has, you know, the, the, the drive or the greed that made makes him successful also makes him bitter and an unpleasant person to be around him. It drives everyone away from him. Uh, in that same bastard in a basket scene, HW says, I'm glad none of you is in me. You know, so yeah. that's the sort of depth that his relation with his son, his own son, maybe not a blood relative, but essentially his son has reached. And, uh, the, you know, there was one question in my mind that I was playing with because, again, in this aspect, the other parallel character I was thinking of was Gordon Gecko from Wall Street, mm. who has embraced that you know greed is uh, famous greed is good, good. speech. Good, yeah. Essentially, is an embracing of uh, negative qualities. Right now, whether uh, Daniel Plainview has made peace with the negative qualities in him, or whether he does not see them as negatives at all, that is a question that I was pondering upon. Right, the church scene probably makes a case for. Him not, uh, you know, rationalizing them as positives, because when pricked, when you know, poked upon him leaving his child, he knows it's a wrong thing he's done. I think it's more just Daniel Plainview deciding, hey, you know what? If this is the cost of me being rich, then that is a cost I will pay. If I have to be an asshole about it, I will consciously be an asshole about it, right? And again, this is a controversial statement. This is a hot take. I mean i am i am now in the process of starting my own thing you know startup is a cutthroat world i don't know if being nice helps you get ahead i don't know i don't have the answer i'm not you know i'm not definitely in a camp saying you have to be an asshole to succeed or you have to be a good guy to succeed but, but i don't know i'm not convinced when people i think say there are
0: no, there are plenty you know? yeah i think there are yeah. plenty of cases to to suggest otherwise, but you don't have to be a good guy to succeed. You need to be a competent guy to succeed. You need to be. Um, you need to know the right people in the right places to succeed, because hard work will get you so far, but it's ultimately people that will get you through the door. Which yeah. is why, even with when it comes to view, uh, every time he makes a pitch, uh, when he's trying to get the people on his side, um, and you, we talk about the cost of success. Like initially, he comes across as a doting father. Uh, and where he says this is my son we are a family run business because the early 20th century people believed in the in the concept of a family there was trust mm-hmm. in in when it when it came to uh when it came to families they were they were the symbols uh, of trust and uh, is he, he pitching to them or piece. is he pitching
1: to himself at some level it almost feels like he, you know he's convincing himself also that hey we are good uh, yeah okay.
0: and i, I think that uh, as you see cuz as the movie progresses you tend to see a lot like the light die from his eyes, which I think is the biggest compliment uh, one could give Diana Day-Lewis because he manages to encapsulate that transition so well. Some of the biggest uh, critics refer to him as one of the biggest, or one of the best villains in recent film history. And this is this is a villain who, who wins at the end. I mean, not even wins. I think he, he doesn't really care at the end. He, he gets what he needs. And then... Uh, the only thing that you could do for him is you could pity him because and that is something a character like him would absolutely detest. Among
1: all the things that he does in this film, where would you draw the line, right? That's where you yeah. come into the picture like, what would I do? That's, that's an interesting question to ponder but uh, that was one theme the other theme that I wanted to discuss was, uh, you know, I really think, the, again, the reason why I feel this movie is uh one of the best movies of this century and probably slightly better than no country for old men like i said it has a lot of depth i feel this is the great american movie you know american in air quotes the westerns used to portray themselves as being you know all american movies this is the great american movie i feel because daniel plainview is clearly an allegory for you know how the u.s sort of became a world power established this hegemony that it still kind of holds maybe with decreased relevance not as much probably as in the 80s but again this hegemony was built on the back of uh in you know their rapid rise on the world stage in industry and manufacturing right uh primarily during between the in, interwar you know primarily in the interwar period between world wars one and two and uh it, world war Two really catapulted them to being a global superpower because of how they were able to ramp up their manufacturing facilities in the interwar period. Here, obviously, that whole the industrial complex is is represented by oil, and uh, similarly, the the movie set around the turn of the century. I think it starts in 1897, ends in 1927. So that 30 year period again, the turn of the century is is exactly when USA stopped being a a regional power which used to fight its wars with Mexico and and Canada and whatnot to becoming a global power which which could now extend global influence, right? So in that sense also, there's a parallel. And uh, obviously, the 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 more obvious in your face uh, point here being the outcome where we've seen of unbridled greed and the desire to control everyone that Daniel Plainview shows and the U.S. has showed. Over the course of the Cold War and, and beyond, the whole Iran-Contra stuff that happened, whatever intervention, I, I mean, intervention is putting it very politely, right? The bullshit that mm. uh, the Reagan uh, administration pulled in South America, in Nicaragua, mm. stuff like that was essentially U.S. putting its nose where it needn't have purely because it did not want a rival power to you know, stamp out rivals before they, yeah. even, uh, before they even rise. Um, hmm. which, is, which comes back to the scene that I, I didn't put in the memorable moments but I kind of want to highlight the scene where uh, Daniel has the chat with uh, his uh, fake brother Henry in the night where he says I have a competition in me uh, I hmm. do not want to see anyone else succeed uh, I hate other people I, I don't like them I see the worst in them which is exactly the US right they see the worst yeah. in everything they're like oh, everyone else is our enemy it's everyone else is out to get us and mm-hmm. in in so doing or in in so believing they behave in such a way that everyone eventually does hate them you know you've manifested what uh, what was uh, it's not it's determinist it's deterministic in that sense you you believe something and you behave in such a way that your belief comes true so uh, all of the stuff that the u.s has done is a direct parallel to uh, Daniel Plainview what he does and how he alienates people around him the same way USA has sort of alienated a lot of countries around it
0: and globally yeah and, and the funny thing is like they don't particularly care right because ultimately in this in, in the world that we currently uh, occupy and for the majority it is a capitalistic society yeah. there are a few that are um, socialist or even communist in nature but if, as long as the world runs as a capitalist society, the U.S. will always have power and will always get away with doing things that uh, other organizations or countries would have major ramifications if they'd done done the same. Which, again, is classified in the way towards the end where he stamps out uh, Eli Sandoz's hopes, and it's left left open ended. But you'd be sure as hell uh, certain that he would get away with it because just for for the sheer amount of power and wealth that he has amassed. And at the end of the day, he's miserable, right? Again, in that case, like, if you see nowadays with
1: the cost of living crisis or with the rising income inequality every decade, the average American is probably not, the American dream has become very hollow now, right? So, yeah, again, what was it all for? That question comes up both in the case of Daniel Plainview and now in the case of USA Today. So, uh that's that's what i wanted to in that sense in all its glory and all its uh, order it's it's all in all its agony and its ecstasy this is the great american movie
0: cool that, what that was, was the that other one the other any, one any i think other... we had was capitalism versus religion if i'm not mistaken yes
1: yes okay so uh again here um mm-hmm. well this is i think at the heart of it right while yes the great american movie is what the story is about Uh, and the parallelisms are about at the heart theme very core of it is the, the the struggle between capitalism and religion again this this was the great struggle of the americas around this time a little before and a little after as well i'd say what makes it interesting uh that in the usa these two were uh opposing forces is the fact that this is in contrast with most other huge empires in history right Right from the time of the Neo-Assyrians from like 9th century, 10th century BC, you you have the Neo-Assyrians, you have the Neo-Babylonians. Sorry, I'm doing a bit of a history segue, but you have (laughs) them, you have uh, the Persians, the Romans, the Greeks, uh, right down to Indian kingdoms. You have Ashoka. Ashoka is a great example of this, where the royal... Uh, class, I would say, the aristocracy, used religion to justify expansionist policies. And the religious set up enthusiastically endorsed expansionist policies. Uh, a, the, probably the best example of this that comes to mind is the uh, uh, Spanish conquistadors in South America. Aro and uh, Cortez and co who came down to the Incas and the, uh, and the Aztecs came and did unspeakably horrible things, right? All in the name of saying, we are spreading the enlightenment of Christianity to to these savages who who have not been exposed to the light of Christ. You're saying you're going to come here, you know, rape them, chop their hands, and this is all in the name of religion. And you're exploiting their natural resources. Uh, But this is what religion and expansion is, capitalist expansion went hand in glove across empires in history but how did it so happen that capitalism and religion were at odds in the u.s because uh, obviously the the roots of the u.s come come from uh the puritans who who, who left uh, the U.K. and and, and mm. yeah europe and sailed to uh the u.s and and i guess uh there was always this sort of internal struggle that society in america probably had I'm again i'm speaking as an outsider wherein uh they sort of wanted to divorce their progress from the roots of religion uh, or maybe it comes from the you know the wasp uh wasp whatever the wasp uh work ethic you know white anglo-saxon protestant work ethic famous wasp work ethic where it's like do your work don't bring religion into it and you'll be successful right so it the two never went hand in glove like it did uh in other empires and uh At this point, you see, maybe the USA sort of had sort of built this idealized image of itself saying, you know, we're a beacon of justice, we're a beacon of whatever, blah, blah, blah. But around the turn of the century, they sort of realized, hey, you know what, capitalism is good, being a world power is good. And, uh, you know, maybe we can start compromising on our morals a little bit. We'll start building narratives that justify these compromises that we make. Uh, religion played a little bit of catch-up with with these compromises, and therefore, I think that's where the tension comes from. Uh, yeah. Before I go into this, uh, the the parallelism that I I told you, I'm going to dive into. I mean, do you have any thoughts on what I've said so far?
0: The one thing that that I'd probably like to add uh, with regards to this, it's it feels like for the first time, during let's say post the steam engine, post the late 1800s, where there was this, there where religion struggled. To find, uh, to, to like you mentioned, to ke- to keep up with capitalism because it felt that if if it had not stayed in in tow with it in line with it, then it would have been fully irrelevant. Which is why so much of religion today is backed by by pro capitalist um, what do you call organizations? Why, which is why if you go look at Christian organizations, look at uh, the amount of donations they receive all in the name of God. And you just know, right? Like God men across, government would probably be putting them into a very small bracket. But generally the the marriage of religion and capitalism, which for year for generations were hand in hand in glove, I think for the first time were challenged because you no longer needed the church uh, to become successful, to le- to live a happy life. Suddenly there was this newfound, especially in the late 1800s and early 1900s, there was this newfound God and one could which was oil, which everyone was craving and running towards. So it it became a whole a battle for relevancy, in in my opinion. And I think that's what this, this movie does really well in in capturing. Basically, the advent of science uh
1: continued to make religion more and more irrelevant, right? The yeah, mysteries of the world yeah. kept getting solved with science. All of the the secrets, so-called secrets that the religions of the world uh proclaimed to possess. Uh they were being stripped off uh layer by layer. And therefore the only choice they had was to accept this irrelevance or dig their heel, heels in deeper, which is essentially yeah. what a lot of these did. And uh, they were like, you know, we'll we'll double down on our beliefs. We'll we'll in the face of uh rationality we're double we want to double down on irrationality. Which is, I mean, the congregation and the happenings of the of the Church of the Third Revelation. Even in that time seems stupid, right? Even somebody contemporary like Daniel Plainville looks at it and is like, this is bullshit. Like, it doesn't have a place in in 1912 or 1911 or whatever. So it's just digging down and, you know, doubling down on the stuff that you're just holding on to because that's really all you have left. Uh, But yeah, I'm going to dive into... uh, I have sort of force-fit this uh, allegory on... uh, I have forced this allegory on Abhin, sorry. Uh, And I'm going to force this on our our viewers and listeners as well. So I was like, okay, if you're looking at this from uh, the whole, you know, if if the movie is about the Americas and uh, there's a clear allegory, can I like fit each of these characters into slots? I feel there's some play here. I don't know how much, but uh, here goes. I feel, firstly, Daniel Plainview is the military-industrial complex specifically, but at large, the capitalist drive of America as a country. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's what, like we mentioned in the previous theme, it what drove them to become the world power. Uh, Eli Sunday Eli. or uh, Paul Dano's character, I feel, represents the uh, puritanical origins of America. They want to hearken back to the times of old, when religion was the sole explainer of how the world works. <laughs> Uh, and not the advent of science. And that's something Eli wants to hold on to traditions. Eli wants to retain power. Because religion held sway in those earlier times. And the Daniel Plainviews of the world are now coming and stripping that power away. And the Eli Sundays of the world are doubling down on it. HW, uh, who is uh, Daniel Plainviews' son, to me in this scenario represents the indigenous people and and the, the black people who were no, brought on as slaves in the 19, 19th century and, you know, were subjugated well into the 20th century. A, because they were silenced. In H.W.'s case, he's deaf and therefore cannot speak. The indigenous people were silenced. The blacks were silenced. They weren't able, they weren't given a voice. They were. They were used to portray the progress of America as being inclusive, as being organic, but if if one were to look one layer deeper, you realize that these were just exploited and weren't a participant in progress. Just like H.W. in Daniel Plainview's story, uh, I wasn't exactly sure how uh, Daniel's fake brother Henry fit into the narrative. But then, after some thought, I was like, maybe Henry is Russia, right? For a brief while, mm. uh, Henry and Daniel were friends. friends. Then, mm. then Daniel realizes really- hey, this guy is uh, his intentions are not. He's not what he says he is. And uh, in the movie, spoiler alert, Daniel uh, shoots Henry to death. Uh, the USSR died in 1989, so my theory holds.
0: <laughs> I mean, it's not like one of the biggest entities of the USSR is currently invading another country. But yeah, <laughs> the USSR yeah. is dead, but uh, the, the single powers remain. Fair. Uh, the, the ghost
1: of Henry survives.
0: Though Now, here's, here's the thing that I wanted to ask you regarding... The two Sundays, Eli and Paul. Uh, are you of the opinion that they are both the same person? I don't know.
1: I don't know. Yeah, because so, so my no thing is that. Ah, what's that your theory? Paul
0: is meant to be. Yeah, my whole explanation is that uh, Paul is is supposed to represent the devil, or supposed to represent a demon who comes to uh, you and offers him a deal, saying, "I'll give here is I know there's oil here." You dig and I'll give you something in return. And I think Eli is the is supposed to be this corrupted god that is trying to obviously exert influence on the on the land that, that he uh, what do you call uh, is part of and he is and he tries to extort and uh, play with the process as well. So I was wondering if there was because as we spoke about the Faustian tale about uh, you know uh, about greed and what it can do to you who is who is satan in that aspect is satan one of the brothers or is it or is satan oil themselves all itself
1: i don't think satan has oil itself oh, oh in in if if you were to draw a parallel to uh the f- story of faustus then yes paul mm-hmm. would be satan and not eli but i yeah. uh, i don't think there is a character parallel I think there's a thematic parallel with the Faustian bargain and what Daniel Plainview does. If you force... I mean, if we we try and put a character parallel, then I would say Paul is the uh, the devil in this case. But in the context of the film, I don't know if that works because, you know, Paul didn't do a wrong thing. He took his money and bounced.
0: Yeah, and that's really funny because he's such an influential character. The story does not go where it does without him. But he's there and then he's gone. And when Eli does show up on screen... I'm very confused, just much like Plainview. I'm just like, who is... Isn't this Paul Sunday? Why are they calling him Eli? And then but so Plainview doesn't say anything.
1: I remember watching that scene, yeah. I'm like, is he going to react? Plainview also, you can see this flash of surprise on his or confusion on his face. But he doesn't say anything. He's like, what if Paul is just fucking with me? I don't want to exactly, yeah. give him that edge. So he just says, oh, "Hi, hi, Eli. And I think we yeah, as yeah. the audience are also expected to just go with it. I don't know. It's a, it's a very strange uh, transition.
0: I still, it, I I would, I mean, I, I haven't heard PTA talk about it, but, uh, I'm curious to know, uh, what the reasoning behind, behind that. I think, I think today, if you're asking me, you just totally be like, yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, but yeah, I think that that's the, that's a, a good, uh, what do you call? Yeah. I think these are the movie themes. themes
1: we- yes. These are the movie themes that we did talk about, but given that, uh, you know, Daniel Day Lewis has a relatively small filmography, and uh, I don't know when next we'll cover a DDL film. I also wanted to spend a couple of minutes uh, talking about why I feel Daniel Day Lewis is, uh, again, I'm going to take a stand here. Unquestionably, the single best actor. And it's not. I'm not even going to say among the best. He's the single best actor, a male actor. Let's put it that way. I'm sure there are. You know, Meryl Streep could have a claim, and there are probably women, also in, in the conversation. But within men, he's the single greatest actor I have seen on screen or, you know, in the profession, who's ever acted on screen. I'll give you my reasoning, right? So, primarily, there, there, there are two aspects. Again, I'm talking out of my ass, maybe. In my opinion, there are two aspects to performance, right? There is the acting or the emoting and the appearance and the mannerism and, you know, all of that that goes with embodying the look and feel of the character right so you have we have we've had great actors in the past uh in india and i mean i'm in the context of hollywood you've had your De Niro's you've had your al pacinos you've had in mean, the the list goes on there, there's quite a few there's jack nicholson obviously you know you can name actors who are great performers and uh and you have actors who are who are great chameleons, right? Who really slip into their look for a role. And the closest my uh, parallel that comes to mind for me is uh, uh, Christian Bale. Uh, this mm-hmm. is not to say Christian Bale is not a good actor, but I would yeah. say he's a much better chameleon than he is. I would not say he's as good an actor as uh, you know Deniro uh, Pacino mm-hmm. in uh, Godfather Two, especially the okay. scene where uh, Kay Adams tells him you know she's aborted the child and. That, that those few seconds where you can just see like that is peak Al Pacino acting for me. Uh, Christian Bale to my experience or to my limited knowledge does not have an equivalent of that. But again Al yeah. Pacino and De Niro's they never slipped into their roles the way uh, a Christian Bale or a Daniel Day-Lewis does because uh, at the end of the day whatever it is, right? even in something like a Raging Bull for De Niro which is probably the most physical transformation that he's done for a role you you watch it and you're like yeah i mean you know that's de niro that's pacino they don't they never you never lose sight of them as the performer or as the actor great acting but they don't lose themselves into the role yeah someone like christian bay loses themselves into a role good actor but not at this level daniel Day lewis is like you know what fuck you i'm gonna do both he is <laughs> as good an actor as a Pacino or a De Niro. He slips into the role as good as somebody like a Christian Bale or a Johnny Depp, right? Like they yeah. I feel at this point, I don't know who Daniel De Lewis as a person is at all. To me, he's just a vessel for the character he's playing at that point of time.
0: And even His who, wife made a made, a, made yes. a very fun comment about how um she's lived with many different characters for the last 30 years. Exactly, and it's always an entertaining experience,
1: and uh, and you know he brings that to his performance to a degree I have not seen before. It comes in the way he's. Uh, Daniel Lewis is such a great physical actor, right? Even in this movie, the leg that he breaks at the in the first scene of the film. Whenever he's not under stress, the character of Daniel Plainview, he's walking normally. Whenever he's yeah. exaggerated, there are exaggerated motions, or he's doing something hurriedly, he's under stress. You see that limp come back into play. He is yeah. so aware of his physicality. And again, this is something you see really uh, amp up the menace in Daniel Plainview's persona. Is the way Daniel uh, Day-Lewis holds a stance, holds a gaze, holds the way he, you know, he tilts his neck. Yeah. He's such a physically aware actor, more so than anybody else I know. So there's the body language is, you know, that's how he
0: brings body language into play. Even his voice. So Norm Macdonald, a couple of uh, years ago, was on a podcast with Sarah Silverman and someone else. And he talked about having watched There Will Be Blood and he really liked it. But the one thing that really bothered him was the fact that Daniel Day-Lewis was doing an impersonation of John Huston. Because, and he mentioned this as well. And when he said, when he mentioned it, I was like, oh, yeah, of course, He's right. If you watch Chinatown and the way uh, John Huston enunciates his, his sentences in that is very similar to how Plainview's uh, entire delivery of, of, of dialogue is. So and which has also turned out to be funnier because I think Norm Macdonald for years has been parodying John Huston in uh, in movies or like in sketches. So he went and apparently asked PTA about what like if he would asked him to do it and he said no. It's just something he came up with himself and I just went along with it. You've got to. Nasty reputation, Mister Gibbs. I like that. Now, because of the distance from the discovery well, I'll pay you a smaller royalty than you'd get down there. But I'm prepared to give you a thousand dollar bonus on your lot. So it's it feels like uh like I'd I wonder how he co- how he shapes those characters because I assume there's a brief from the director saying this is what you do. But I'm sure directors are very uh, aware of the fact that when they're asking their actors to deliver a performance they do offer a fair bit of responsibility to the actor to shape the character in the, in the image they see fit. Uh, yes, there are certain, like, obviously strict parameters that they're not allowed to get out of, mm. uh, but I, they do allow them the, the creativity to fill out that character and really bring it to the fore. And I think the John Huston part of it is something that uh, Daniel Day-Lewis really brought to the screen. His voice... His voice really plays a huge part in making that character so memorable because it's the it's the fluctuating uh, vocal ranges. It's the I'll go now and then the and when he's delivering like stoic monologues, it's always at a perfect pitch. It's, yeah, and if you if you hear him talk
1: in real life, right, his voice is probably closest to the Lincoln voice. He's very yes. soft spoken. He doesn't have like a his natural voice is not a baritone. It's almost like a wisp of a voice he talks yeah. very softly you have to like strain yourself to hear him but he brings this ferocity this this i don't know breadth to his voice in the role and uh, john Huston is exactly what he sounds like when somebody told me i was like fuck yes this is exactly like john Huston in chinatown and uh he also uh i think period appropriate i if i'm not mistaken daniel Plainview speaks in a transatlantic accent which was an uh-huh. accent that was prevalent in the 20s and 30s which was this mix of the british and american accents you know it's neither here nor there transatlantic as an accent doesn't exist in movies today but actors in the in the movies of the 20s to 40s used to use that accent quite contemptuous of me all of a sudden and what the devil is all this about why was i brought here so you know he's he's paid that level of attention to detail as well and uh you know, all of that comes into place. So, you know, it's it's the look and feel. He slips into he's a vessel for the character, and he gives like you know goat level performances. There really is no other uh, act. And if you do this wrong with your head up your ass, you get something like a Jared Leto in Suicide Squad, right? You you have completely yeah. misunderstood the 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 principle of doing this. You've just gone for the you know the the show and tell part of it, which is how you get something. Method method like.
0: acting can be very yeah can be very difficult to deal with and can be can hilariously backfire on you if, if if things get wrong. I mean this movie came out in 2007, and there is a great allegory for method acting and it's and the sheer stupidity that it brings, uh, in a film that released two years later or rather a year later, I'm not quite sure in *Tropic Thunder* which again (laughs) is a film that has aged like fine fucking wine. This is a movie I watched recently. And again, there are two instances in that film where one obviously being the problematic method acting uh, part, which is the character played by Robert Downey Jr. So the other being, of course, uh, the film within the film that is Simple Jack. Now you can have ice cream in heaven. Which is like full method acting and and fully... (laughs) Uh, over I the top. Grew my so, hair out,
1: Duke. I can't be simple jack anymore. <laughs> uh, coming back.
0: Okay, so to conclude, we have one final segment for this week's episode. Which I which, which we're which most is, excited about. Exactly. Uh, which is called What If X were to make Y? Where we take a particular director and conjure up a scenario where they made the movie that we're currently being uh, currently discussing. So this week's uh, <laughs> segment is Never Blood. <laughs> What if Michael Bay were to make There Will Be Blood? So what you would expect is you would probably expect like slow mo shots everywhere, especially of uh, plane view falling through the uh, uh, falling through the Derrick or him like getting up and watching the Derrick explode, (laughs) um, saying "shit just got real," and then the camera is like no, and cameras going (laughs) around, like a three sixty camera spin. And, like, you'd have Linkin Park at the back or, like, Aerosmiths. And you'd have the epic trailer voice guy. I think the epic trailer voice guy has to, it would be perfect for this film. In a world plagued with oil. One man who's got a plain view of how things should run. <laughs> plain view? Yuck! <laughs> <laughs> and there'll be, like, some 1800s uh, village bell shaking her booty on screen. Uh, and there'll be like a British, like under undershot that you know how Michael, what Michael Bay is famous for would uh, <laughs> you watch it I'd watch it <laughs> I mean I definitely watch a Michael Bay movie because here's the thing he makes terrible movies but they're all really good looking movies like it's I don't think there's been a single Michael Bay movie where you looked at it and gone okay that just looks shit yes there are points where it's, there's incoherent uh, like robots fighting uh, each other and you can't tell what the hell is happening but it still looks damn good. He burnt computers and like uh, destroyed uh...
1: There'd definitely be a horse chase scene in the movie if it was directed by him. For sure, there were no yeah. horse chases so... in the
0: movie. Yeah, there'd be a Or horse like chase imagine there'd...
1: two Ford model Ts like banging each other at like ten miles per hour.
0: There there'd be an epic showdown uh, in the in the final sequence in the bowling alley, when there'd be a slow-mo bowling alley uh, pin fight.
1: Yeah. Which, again, somehow would explode. I don't know how bowling pins explode, but in his movie, they would.
0: Michael Bay's dream would be the Derek sequence. Watching that thing explode in real time, for him, it'll be like Oppenheimer's atom bomb.
1: Yeah, after the Derek explosion, someone would have walked up to Michael Bay. He would have been in ecstasy. I'm finished.
0: That's a great way to end this episode. <laughs> oh, actually, it is. Yeah, uh, not bad. Yeah. And yeah, that that. We're uh, finished. Uh, we're finished. <laughs>